Uh, good afternoon to all of the delegates and welcome to the University of the Free State Thought Leaders webinar series. Um, you know, as a, as a public higher education institution in South Africa, with a responsibility to contribute to public discourse, the University of the Free State is presenting the sixth webinar in its Thought Leadership series for 2021. And we are hosting this webinar as part of the Fresh Start Literature Festival's online initiative called Fresh Start Digital. Now, I hope some of you have, or have attended some of our earlier webinars, one of, the, one of the five that we have presented this year. But the topics that um, we presented or hosted in this webinar series include, amongst others, reimagining universities for student success. In fact, we started that off beginning of this year uh, with uh, some great input from, uh, from Georgia State University as well and other colleagues and, and researchers within South Africa. We then focus on corruption in South Africa, the endemic pandemic. Uh, uh, and, and that was in itself uh, a fantastic webinar. Uh, that was followed by the South African politics in the local government elections. And that was leading up to, uh, um, to the local government uh, uh, elections. Uh, and then is South Africa falling apart and why vaccinate? Uh, those were some of the topics that we, that, we, that we really have discussed. And you could clearly see that these are real topical issues of the day. And we believe as university, uh, we, we, we need to play and bring this on a platform where we can discuss it, unpack it a bit, and, 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 and add to our, our, dis, uh, our discourse. So uh, um, in 2020, the webinar series saw the successful participation of leading experts discussing COVID-19, and the crisis facing the country socially, economically, and politically. And, and we clearly have seen that playing out in, in 2020, 2021. So today's discussion is titled Looking Through a Crystal Ball. Uh, uh, um, and, 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 and for me, it, it, it really focuses on uh, predictions for 2022. And that's really why we're talking about the crystal ball, uh, because we don't often know what's going to happen. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that uh, um, our panelists will give us a little bit of a clearer insight. Uh, um, but I want to say with the daily vaccine rates dropping, it is likely that we will have to wait until 2022 to see a significant proportion of South Africa on South Africans vaccinated. This means that significant health risks and pressures will continue lurking for the next perhaps one to two years which doesn't bode well for the overall economy uh, compounded by the social pressures. And we could clearly see the social pressures uh, um, uh, coming through also uh, when we're looking at the outcomes of the, of, of the elections. As we approach the end of 2021, uh, we reflect on the year that is almost over. And we look ahead to what 2022 may bring politically, economically, and also socially. Where do we see ourselves in the coming year? These are some of the issues that we will be discussed in this webinar. And I want to say that we've got an esteemed uh, 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 um, platform of panelists here. Uh, and I want to, at upfront, want to say thank you uh, to all of the panelists, which I will introduce right now, uh, for availing themselves 
for what I think is going to be a thought-provoking discussion. I want to, and I'm going to ask the panelists just to, to put on um, their, their, um, their cameras as I will introduce them now, because when we get to the presentations, uh, they're just going to do the presentation one after the other. Uh, um, and uh, I'm going to ask you to note down in the chat box uh, if there are any particular questions you want to ask, but there is also a Q&A that you can ask questions to, uh, which I will pick up uh, and, and, and will, on your behalf, will ask that to the panelists. Uh, we want to make the webinar really interactive. So I've also asked the panelists that if there's a particular question in the chat box that they would like to respond to, that they're welcome to do so, so that we can, that we can make the, uh, uh, the, the webinar uh, very interactive. So I want, to, I want to start off with our first uh, uh, um, uh, panelist, uh, Dr. Pardi Lehorschler. Uh, um, and uh, you, all, you all will know him. He's the former statistician general of South Africa, a position that he held from 2000 uh, to 2007. Um, he also served as a co-chair of the Paris 21 and the chair of the United Nations Statistical Commission. Um, he, uh, uh, um, he served uh, um, as one of the 25 member panel on data revolution appointed by the UN Secretary General and was a member of the independent accountability. Um, I think very importantly, uh, he's also recognized for his contributions uh, in those various fields by various universities uh, in South Africa uh, and also uh, by the University of, uh, of Ghana. Uh, in October 2018, uh, the University of Johannesburg appointed Dr. Lehorschler as a professor of practice. Since 2018, he has become a research associate at the University of Oxford uh, um, and is also a member of the executive of the Inglutlu La Metiti Scenarios 2030 for, for South Africa, a very interesting scenario planning. Uh, so if you do have some time, you should try to Google that and, and just read through it. For, for, for 20 years to date, he has been a weekly columnist in the Business Report, which provides a lens on the functioning of society. So a hearty welcome to you, uh, Dr. Pardi Lahorshla. Our second panelist I want to introduce is uh, uh, um, uh, Ms. Amanda kotzen Slapo. Um, Amanda, if you can just put your camera on, we see Amanda there. Uh, Ms. Amanda kotzen Tlapo was appointed in 2011 as the Chief Convention Bureau Officer of the South African National Convention Bureau, uh, a unit within the South African Tourism. Uh, Ms. kotzen Tlapo joined South African Tourism following a successful tenure at the Cape Town and Western Cape Convention Bureau, where she held the position of head of the Bureau for six, for six years. Her appointment and the establishment of the National Convention Bureau have, have worked to strengthen South Africa's capacity in support of business events, efforts to secure bids for meetings, incentives, conferences, and also exhibitions uh, industry. Uh, so welcome to you, uh, Amanda, and we're also looking forward to your contribution. Our third panelist is uh, Mr. Darby Ruud, uh, and I know that oh, there's Darby, uh, um, uh, so Darby is also a very well-known figure. He's the founder, director, and chief economist of the Efficient Group. He serves on the variety of investment committees 
within the efficient group. And Darby's latest role is the chairman of the efficient private clients with efficient group is uh, where of, of which the efficient group is the majority shareholder. Um, I, uh, uh, I believe that uh, Darby is a nationally renowned economist with more than 30 years experience specializing in monetary and fiscal policy and is currently doing extensive research on the possible impact of cryptocurrencies on monetary policy. That's very interesting, Darby. Uh, we saw, uh, I think, uh, certainly in the new year, depending on how, how that research goes, uh, we should invite you to the university and come and talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, um, he's also ranked uh, the most reference economist in the country and received the prestigious Economist of the Year Award by Sarka24, a media house. And I think uh, a lot of you uh, that watch uh, uh, the Afrikaans channel on, uh, uh, on I think it's 144, uh, he's been the anchor presenter of the television program on Wait Sarka for 18 years. And uh, I think it was recently, probably about a week or two ago, they presented more than a thousand television uh, 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 episodes uh, um, of, of this particular program. So Darby, um, I welcome to you as well. And we're certainly looking forward to your, to your input. And our final panelist is, uh, is someone from, from within the university, one of our own, uh, Dr. Ina Ghost. Uh, Dr. Ina is a senior lecturer in the Department of Governance and Political Transformation at the University of the Free State. Uh, Dr. Ghost has been active as political commentator for a number of years, focusing mostly on South African politics. As an academic, she is active in undergraduate and postgraduate tuition and research supervision. She's also developing a new curriculum for postgraduate diploma in governance, uh, as well as an introductory short learning program for governance, which I think is, 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 is extremely important. So uh, um, delegates, these are our panelists uh, for today. Uh, you can clearly see the esteemed uh, suite of, of, of panelists. And, uh, and I'm certainly looking forward for, for lively debate and lively, uh, uh, lively engagement. Just a, once again, a reminder, please use the chat box if there's any particular questions that you have, uh, use the Q&A. Uh, and, uh, and I think uh, we are ready to, to listen to our first presenter, uh, which is uh, Dr. Pardi Lahorshla. And I'm gonna ask uh, the other panelists uh, and myself, obviously also to switch off our cameras. They will have about, about 12 minutes or so uh, for their presentation, uh, and, then, uh, and then we will go to the next presenter. Uh, Dr. Pardi, over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Patterson, and uh, thank you very much uh, uh, for inviting me uh, to this uh, uh, session. Um, I have a presentation that I'm sharing at the moment and I need to get to the first slide, uh, but uh, it gives you a sense of what uh, I'll be talking to uh, in this uh, quick transition through the slides. I should do this uh, within the allocated 12 minutes of which uh, 10 seconds, the first 10, 10 seconds is gone. Um, the crystal ball and what happens in 2022, I, I, I'll talk to the, the Yeltsin metaphor and uh, that's what I'll conclude with, the, the Yeltsin metaphor. I think that the SDG goals and targets have really brought the world together and has revealed the complexity of implementation of programs and the, the, 
revealed the gaps. Of course, uh, COVID has expanded uh, those gaps. But uh, the idea of leaving no one behind, equity, prosperity, and planet, and invest in future capital, um, drive into these 17 goals and uh, the er target areas. And South Africa is part and parcel of that uh, program. Obviously, uh, as a statistician, our view has always been one of retrospective assessment. And Davi Ruot has been looking, and others uh, like Philippe uh, have been uh, 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 on prospective assessment. Uh, so uh, I'll be approaching this both from the retrospective and prospective assessment. And uh, now that I have been relieved of being a, a statistician general and being confined to the retrospective assessment. We've been engaging in implementing with uh, uh, massive uh, modeling systems uh, from uh, ADRS, and uh, that shows uh, different blocks uh, in terms of financial output, uh, taxes, uh, poverty, and all this uh, modeled together to try and give an idea of how South Africa looks into the future. The MDGs actually brought, were the first to bring some design thinking and systems thinking. Uh, in the arena of uh, statistics, uh, and uh, particularly in the arena of uh, uh, planning. And the transition from MDGs to SDGs, uh, from eight to 17, uh, and then of course country inputs to SDG indicators uh, are submitted every 20th of April. And the SDGs uh, has been very, very challenging, particularly from a data point of view, but enhanced this uh, system thinking. Uh, they are very data first. Now, in order to think about the future, I thought that uh, perhaps uh, one could say the future is about, is sort of on the basis of knowing something in the current. If I were in a, a red zone somewhere in Europe or wherever, um, I would uh, be able to ask myself the, uh, uh, the question of whether there is a striptease nearby given that uh, there are blue neon lights, uh, which is B. Now on a more serious uh, question that affects us as South Africa, is that in the South African crisis, what is the likelihood that uh, South Africa will be a failed state, which is state A, given B? And the, the B is actually very, very current. The MTVPS, that fails dismally to provide a different social and economic policy trajectory. I think, uh, you know, Korongwana presented a very appalling uh, MTBPS in terms of addressing anything about poverty and employment. In fact, it said nothing about that. Uh, what was in there was austerity. 250 billion will be removed from the current budget in the next two years. I mean, when you look at the elections, we are increasingly relying on a feeble locomotive for expressing development choices. The health crisis, the pandemic itself, uh, driving negative demand, supply, and as well as price drops. We have a chronic crisis, a persistent one of low growth, high rates of poverty, unemployment, and inequality, which are not even addressed by the MTBPS. We actually have a policy crisis, failure to deliberate any policies in the country failure to translate policies and laws into long-term plans, absence of policy and planning tools, and in short, poverty of planning systems and competencies. And I have to answer the question as to whether, what is the, 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 the crystal ball? 
I mean, if you think about uh, what we have had, uh, there was here, there was NDP, there was Askiza, there was nine point plan, 14 point plan, New Dawn, and of course, for the local government, building better communities together. All these things uh, combining slogans and plans and uh, none of these which are quantifiable. Uh, I don't know whether I could actually get anything from the local government elections, anything that is sensible. And of course, uh, we have the circus of coalitions and it's about dealing and healing at the moment. Nothing about uh, what happens to society. The only thing that is happening now is, can the ANC reclaim power in 2024? And in there, there's nothing about how do people live and live better. So at Indulamity scenarios, we have been looking at a number of things, uh, which is uh, the Indulamity scenarios at the barometer. And we have looked at three key driving forces that emerged, which is resistance, resentment, and, and reconciliation, uh, institutional capacity and leadership, and social inequality. An assessment on this is that uh, there is a lot of resistance, a lot of resentment, and an aversion to reconciliation. If uh, uh, the clerk's death is anything to go by, we know what how polarized society has been around his legacy. Institutional capacity and leadership, there is absolutely paucity of leadership at the highest level in the country. There's no leadership whatsoever. And now in the civil service, there's lack of capacity. And this is at all levels of society. Go to churches, go anywhere. You find that uh, we are really greatly challenged. If we were to seek some solace, we could say, well, the whole world is more or less like that. Uh, but uh, we, we are not the whole world, we are South Africa. We've got to think about ourselves. And social inequality uh, with the pandemic, this has been ex exacerbated. These are the indicators of this uh, uh, that uh, in the meeting. And we've crafted this into three scenarios. Isibuja, which is trickle down. Uh, Guaraguara, which is masterizing growth. And Naila Walk, which is poor. What we come to here is, uh, well, we've looked at uh, these scenarios, we've looked at this business for South Africa, it is targets. Uh, it has a promise, 8.3 trillion economy by 2030. We look at Houghton growing Houghton together, it's 3.1 uh, million jobs in Houghton alone, 6.4, or uh, 2, 2 trillion economy. Uh, we come to uh, ADRS, 6.4 trillion uh, promise of jobs and so on. And then we come to the president's and the treasury, uh, that is the government plan. It promises us 4.5 trillion. Uh, it promises only one to two million jobs and rate of unemployment. Therefore, by then it will be uh, 30%. Now you want me to say what the crystal ball for the future is. If anything, the president's uh, mission and the, the treasury mission promises nothing in terms of a different future in South Africa. In fact, we are heading for disaster. Now, from in, uh, the Indulamity scenario, uh, we see that uh, we are heading into this Guaraguara, a failed nation. Uh, we are measuring this in 2019, in 2020, and you can see how the green has actually grown to almost 59%. We are on a tipping point. Anything can happen. We have seen 9th July, we have seen quite a number of things. We have seen the, the, the failures at ESCOM. So things are not looking good at all. Now we think of political mobilization. Are we politically mobilizing ourselves to anything? Uh, have we defined a social desirable? Uh, have we got an economically feasible plan? All these circles are sitting apart from one another. 
So there is very, very difficult situations for South Africa. Now, from a model point of view, what we think is that uh, we, South Africa can still reach growth that is reasonable. From a 2%, of course, that is now 1.8% given the, the current situation. If we look at business as usual, that would add 0.7 percentage points. If we look at micro reforms that are being talked about uh, by EI, um, Ministry of Trade and Industry, by the President, by the Treasury, uh, those will only add 0.27 percent into the growth basket. If we look at trade and industry, that will only add 0.38 percent. So we are still below 3 percent, uh, or rather just above 3 percent, 3.1 percent. The animal, the elephant in the room is this one, the macroeconomic reforms that treasury and everybody doesn't even want them talked about. And that could bring 1.43% uh, to the economy. And uh, if we look at uh, social development or social interventions such as big, it would not add a lot of growth, but uh, it will bring social cohesion and social compact. It will only add 0.05 percentage points. Then, of course, uh, private, uh, private support, uh, which was not even considered when it presented its uh, issues uh, to government, uh, it would add 0.79, and all other uh, external support could add 0.12%. And the model suggests that even under the circumstances, for as long as we tackle the macro, uh, it is possible to grow higher. But we are not, and uh, the Minister of Finance was silent on this, you know, was silent on this. So if you were to ask me, what is the crystal ball? I'll go back to Yeltsin, crystal ball, when he took off from Brezhnev, uh, from, uh, from, from uh, uh, not Brezhnev, from Korbachev. He said, this year is better than next year. That's my crystal ball. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, thanks, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Pardi. Uh, that's a that's a very good a good good comment to to finish the presentation. This year or next year is going to be better than this year, uh, or this year is going to be better than next year. But we will we will discuss that uh, when we get to the engagement. So thank you very much for also keeping to the time. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go directly to uh, Amanda Amanda Kotsen Slapel. Uh, and Amanda, you can start with your presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, fantastic to be around, um, you know, people that, uh, that the statistics and, you know, and all the economists and, and everyone that, um, you know, I'm a marketeer. Um, important for me to make sure that our country, you know, is out there and that we, you know, that we do have, um, a tourism sector, hopefully, that, uh, you know, that will continue to, um, you know, to, to, to grow, um, even in the situation that we are um, in. And I'm just trying to just see what happened here. Um, hmm. uh, it, it is on the screen, Amanda. Yes, uh, it is, but it's yeah. not on a, yeah, I can't, let me just see. Uh, do you want to put it on a slideshow? Yeah, yeah, to put it on a slideshow. Um, maybe I'll just stop. It's fine. Okay. I'll just speak to it. It's fine. Um, so, so um, I think the important thing is, is that, um, you know, where we are coming from and, you know, the global outlook from the UNWTO uh, recovery tracker um, is very clear on, you know, on what we are, you know, what we are, what we can expect. 
um, and, and where we are at the moment. So at the moment, what we are seeing is that we are 88% below what it was, you know, um, the three months of 2020, because we know that is pre-COVID. Um, and then also um, out of um, Africa, um, America recovering is the fastest um, and um, than any other region, um, but also still 76% lower. And then the, the, the second uh, fastest recovery is Europe, that is 87% lower. Asia and Pacific, we, I, um, we can't even talk about them. We all know that they, they are not traveling at this stage. They are locked down um, and, you know, not, not formally, but, um, you know, we know that they are not coming 97% below, um, you know, the, what it was in 2020. Um, so the, 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 it's really looking bleak, but what is very positive is that there are, um, you know, hotels, for instance, uh, China is starting to search, they're not book, booking, um, but they are starting to search um, for hotel rates and, uh, and it's now 76 lower than before, percent lower than before. Um, but the confidence is taking up. Hotel occupancy rates are up with 48%. And I think that for us is, you know, very important. So what does it mean for us as South Africa? Um, is that um, what is what is very important to note is that South Africa um, is 84.1% um, uh, um, that we are down, um, and but we are higher um, uh, um, than the 88%, the global average of the 88% of the world. And what is driving this um, recovery? Um, is that we are, um, is the African markets. And, you know, that is also giving us the opportunity. Um, and also when we did scenario planning with our uh, tourism recovery uh, sector plan, um, it was very clear um, around the world and also UNWTO, everyone was saying that we are doing it, um, you know, first domestic, then regional, and then we will see some international uh, recovery. Um, the immediate opportunity that we do have is North America, um, but we are lacking very much behind because they are also traveling, you know, locally and domestically. And also the, the main thing is, is that we have the business events, as we call it, um, the meetings, the convention sector, you know, where corporates are meeting like this. And I know that Professor Pardy said earlier that we, you know, we're supposed to be in person. And I fully agree with that. There's no glitches, you know, when you're in person and we can talk um, to each other and, and create um, magic. Um, but, but, you know, the important thing is, is that we need to get these people back uh, to meet and to, and, and to come. Um, the global forward booking um, are slowly improving for the month of August um, at minus 81% lower than before. And e-ticketing booking in Africa is leading um, the recovery at minus 74%, followed by Americas at minus 77%. Middle East and Europe are not far behind with minus 79% and, and minus 88%. I know that, you know, it must sound really down that we are talking about these minus 84%, minus 77%, and, and, and. But what it actually means is that um, there are, you know, a slow recovery coming back, um, you know, to the, to the shores. Um, but what for South Africa, it means that if there is global recovery, it means that more tourists are now willing to travel. Um, given that vaccination, you know, um, 
programs are rolled out and people are building confidence to go back. And, you know, if you are looking at what we as a tourism sector uh, contributed before, 131 billion rand to the GDP, um, you know, 3% direct contribution to the GDP before COVID, 4.5% of the total employment, then we know that we need to work very hard to make sure that, that we are recovery, recovering. And um, as I said, you know, the recovering definitely and um, going forward for the next two years, we still see that being the main recovery, and that is domestic. You know, domestic um, in South Africa, um, it really shows that we do have um, signs, impressive signs of recovery. Um, according to the latest numbers, a total of 8.9 million domestic trips were taken between January and August. Um, and that is uh, August 2021. And that signaled a decline of 11.2% when compared to the same period last year. And this decline, of course, is um, uh, people are, um, it's where a comparable number of people were traveled, but took fewer trips to different destinations. I think what is very important is that we build that confidence for our people where they were normally going outside, you know, for maybe for a holiday, they are, are now doing, you know, a, um, a domestic trip. And it really helped us as an as a industry, you know, to, uh, to get some uh, business back and some uh, economy back uh, into our um, industry. Um, what we are doing specifically, um, you know, as the tourism sector and South African tourism is that we looked and say, let us be focused. You know, before we would kind of like, and, and, and we call it in marketing, as you know, spray and pray, you know, where you are going out and you really market widely. We cannot do that any longer um, because of the cost of it, but also because we need to focus on where the potential is so that we can get, and that is the future. And when we are looking at any of our competitors, it's exactly the same thing that they are doing. They are going out with, um, you know, global campaigns to very specific markets, knowing what they want, and then building confidence. I think the most important thing is, is that we need to build this confidence that people can, um, you know, with confidence, come back to our country. Um, we have 21 um, markets that we are, um, or 24 markets that we are looking at. And, you know, that that is with the target of 2030. And many people ask us, we had a target before COVID um, that we committed that the president was announced that we by 2030, uh, we will have 21 million um, visitors and tourists to our country. Um, you know, it is a, it's a tall order. But when we are looking at what is happening, we do believe that we can still reach that number um, if we are um, being successful in our uh, execution of our um, uh, recovery plan. Then just quickly to look at the meetings industry, I did speak about it. We are seeing for the future and for the near future, the next two years, um, that the salespeople will prioritize larger meetings as they travel to fewer individual sales calls. And that is just to manage their risk, of course. Um, meetings travel will benefit from leisure travel. I think it was always that, you know, there was a, um, a, um, a we coined, um, you know, leisure travel. However, um, you know, there is also in your decision making, it, um, it now shifted much more where people will um, come for a meeting, you know, when you, when you are a delegate and definitely add some days on, um, you know, not a lot of days, but two to three days they will add on. 
um, professionals will flock to their association events. I think one thing that we learned, it's very lonely to be at home trying to be creative and, and not be able to, um, you know, to associate and to network, business network with your, your, with your peers. I know specifically from the academic world, you know, going to these international conferences and, and, um, and uh, share ideas and business ideas as well um, is extremely important. But more important for us also is also profiling our country and our thought leaders. And I like um, that the webinars also, um, you know, um, uh, called a thought leader um, uh, platform. Um, so bookings are definitely getting up. We, um, in, in from a South African specific perspective, is that we already uh, secured 46 um, uh, events, uh, you know, for the next, um, between 22 and uh, 27. And of course, many other bits that is in the pipeline, and that can result, um, you know, in 67,000 delegates, um, 2.3 billion um, economic impact, and 243 combined event days. What is great about the meeting sector is that it is a future, um, you know, pipeline that you can fill up. Because some of the people that are now still, you know, at university, they don't even know that they are coming to our country because we win the bid. So the meeting sector, whilst they were the first to shut down um, and also the laws that would recover, the future looks very, very um, good. And, you know, if we are getting all our ducks in a row and making sure that, um, you know, our protocols are there and that we can give that confidence for people to be able to do face-to-face -face meetings. Why face-to-face? -face? Because many people will say, but it's cost effective, you know, to do it on we, there's a statistic that says that when you are on, on the Zoom, as we are now, you are only creating, you know, like 10, 10.3, um, 10 I think, um, ideas, um, whilst if you are face-to-face, -face, it's 17.4. And I think that is where, you know, face-to-face -face are much more pro uh, focused and productive. It's, um, it helps um, uh, focusing e um, easily and also clearly um, uh, uh, communicating the goals, you know, of, of, of people and building very strong relationships. And um, business networking is not something that you can do easily on a, on, on, on a Zoom call or a Zoom meeting. Um, and therefore, you know, hybrid is there for us to stay, but an added value and not the way that we will see it um, coming, you know, um, in the future. Um, it will not just be a virtual meeting. And hybrid also not being the only um, solution for us, um, but that hybrid is actually, like I said, an added value, and the face-to-face -face will be where the biggest benefit is for you. Then, um, as I said about the, you know, the, the tourism sector recovery plan that is aligned with the economic restructuring um, and recovery plan, um, and, and, you know, which is the country's plan for overall economic recovery, and, and tourism, uh, as I said, you know, play a very important role. We are focusing on three pillars, if I can say. Pro protect and rejuvenate supply, reignite demand, and strengthen enable ca capability. If there's, if there's one thing that happened during our period in, in South Africa uh, for COVID in the tourism sector, is that our capability, you know, people found other work, um, and now they don't want to work during weekends, and, you know, and, and, and. And so for us, what is important is that we need to make sure 
that we build that capability back and that we that we with that also um, uh, looking at our infrastructure development um, you know the mass public um, employment and of course very important green economy intervention um, of course, the operating context, we all know it is there and we need to make sure that we that we navigate through it in the future. And how do we do that? Communicate, communicate, working together, coming together. Um, and of course, very important for us, the biggest known weapon against COVID for the tourism sector at this stage is vaccination. And so um, the more that we can get um, the va vaccination program rolled out and our tourism um, you know, people can come back um, to work and be able to open um, uh, fully um, with all the protocols and build that confidence, the better it is. So what is the big things for us to be done? Um, South African citizen participation, proactively engage with strategic partners, as I said, promote and support the sector transformation, industry engagements. You can, you can hear that a lot of this is across the tourism ecosystem and we need to focus we need to make sure that we work together and that we are all on the same page working for the same for the same goal and that is of course as i said for the 20 you know 2030 um 21 million um so to just say that there are specific projects also that that are looking you know um into um, uh, helping this recovery. Um, one of them is that we have our tourism uh, shows back, um, uh, Africa's Travel in Daba, where we are bringing buyers out. We are participating in international um, uh, travel expos at the moment. Again, we just came back from London. We just also did um, uh, IMEX in Las Vegas. And what, that, and what we found uh, people are saying is that people are ready to come back. They are really ready to meet again. They're really ready to travel again. Um, it is really for us just to build that confidence. And so the socioeconomic cost of the pandemic will be a visible scar um, on the world and South Africa's for years to come, come as we know. Um, the task of reviving the country's tourism sector, as I said, is very critical. And um, tourism and its resilience has the ability to, um, to rebound and can be a catalyst. And I think this is the important thing. If the tourism sector can recover, the broader economic recovery will also happen. And if we can work together, private and pub public sector, committing to our respective roles, tourism in South Africa can go back to its former glory and we can reach that goal of 21 million by 2030. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much, Amanda. Uh, there's a couple of questions that I certainly will pick up uh, when we when we come back. Uh, um, let's uh, let's move to our next presenter, uh, Darby Ruit. Um, Darby, over to you. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for the invitation. This is uh, really an honor to be part of this esteemed panel. Um, I have a couple of minutes to run through quite a lot of slides, so I'm going to get going and see if I can go through my presentation. Uh, quickly. Uh, let's just get to the most important part. Whenever you talk about the economy, it's always important to understand the basics of any econo economy. What are those three important things that assure, basically assure economic growth? And the three things are, and I can talk about this for hours, but the three most important things are the following. The one is that there must be private property rights and private property rights protection. The reason for that is because in economics, there are no free lunches, but there is one free lunch and that is free trade. 
because with free trade, both the buyer and the seller both gain from a transaction. And, and that is a, the only real free lunch. So after a transaction, both are better off and you have created wealth literally out of nothing. And But you cannot trade if you do not have private property rights. So the, two, the, the third most important thing is that you must have sound money. It's very difficult to trade if you don't have money. I have to exchange my cow. If I want a chicken, I have to exchange my cow for, for 10 sheep and then one sheep for 10 chickens. Now I've got nine sheep, chickens I don't want and I've got nine sheep I do not want. And for that reason, money plays a very important role. Uh, the three golden rules for any working and functioning economy is that there must be private property rights protection, there must be free trade, and there must be sound money. Now, if you, if you look at these three points, do we have private property rights protection in South Africa? To a degree, yes, but it is without a doubt under threat. Do we have free trade in South Africa? To a degree, yes, but it is being limited everywhere, wherever you look. There are more, more and more examples of trade that is being limited. Do we have sound money? Well, I think the governor at the Reserve Bank is doing a fairly good job, but the reality is the South African currency has lost nearly 99% of its value the past 60 years. But those are the three important ones. All right, let's get um, just a couple of interesting international developments that I think it's important to South Africa. Of course, I'm not going to go through all of this, but if there are questions specifically about this, uh, we can talk about it a little bit later. Remember, South Africa is a small open economy. There are a couple of uh, potential political flashpoints internationally. I think China, United States, around, around the Taiwan, that's a possible flashpoint. Another one is what's happening in Central Europe at the moment. Of course, the Middle East is always there. All those sort of things can go wrong with a potential impact on the South African economy and the rest of the world, of course, as well. Currently, what we are experiencing, significant supply chain disruptions. And with that, we have global, very high levels of inflation. And there's a big debate amongst econ economists whether this is transitionary or, which, which, or whether this is more uh, temporary in nature. Fiscal policy is still very, very expansionary. Monetary policy, we're gradually moving to more uh, tighter monetary policy internationally. Uh, some central banks already increase interest rates, while the big ones like the Fed indicated that they're going to start so-called tapering and probably going to see an increase in interest rates next year sometime. And globally, the world economy is actually doing not too badly. So that is the world economy in a very, very tiny nutshell. Um, the best way of looking, um, making a prediction on what can be expected in the future is simply looking at what's been happening in the last couple of years. And let me share a couple of pictures with you to see how we have been doing in South Africa. Now, what I have here is per capita GDP uh, of South Africa, the, the blue line there compared to the rest of the world. And that's the 100 line there, that solid white line. So this is South Africa's per capita GDP as a percentage of the rest of the world. And one can clearly see what's been happening the last couple of years, last 25 years or so, from about 85% of the world's per capita GDP, we're down to below 65% of world's per capita GDP today. In fact, it's even lower than that. Compared to the rest of Africa, 25 years ago, our per capita GDP was 2.6 times that for the rest of Africa. Africa is that purple line at the bottom. And today we are still significantly uh, wealthier or better off than most, uh, most Africans, the rest of Africa, but our, uh, the rest of Africa is catching up quite quickly. But we are still something like more than twice on a per capita GDP basis, better off than most Africans. This is uh, South Africa's per capita GDP compared to China. Now, 
people are going to criticize me. Why compete it to China? I say, why not? Why can't we implement policies to grow the economy much faster? 25 years ago, our per capita GDP was four was um, four and a half times that of the average Chinese. Today, it is approximately half that of the average Chinese, obviously because of massive economic growth happened in China in the last couple of decades. This is part of the reason for our problems that we're facing in South Africa. This is, remember, this is a smooth line. So actually in 1994, South Africa generated more electricity on a per capita basis than the rest of the world. Today, we generate less than 65% of the rest of the world, and it's probably going to continue to fall further. And if you don't have electricity, your country cannot grow. Um, electricity relative to China, in 1994, we generated more than five and a half times as much electricity on a per capita basis as the average Chinese, and today we generate less than the average Chinese. The debt as a percentage of GDP, this is a major issue that we have to be all very concerned about. In today, South Africa's the fiscal debt levels are above that on average of the rest of the world. Of course, there are many countries with fiscal debt levels higher than ours, including the big ones like the the Japanese and the Europeans mostly and the Americans and so on. But compared especially to emerging economies, our debt levels have become are very, very high. And I would argue it's become unsustainable as it is. Uh, all numbers are not necessarily uh, time series. Sometimes you get a snapshot. And I think this is part of the reason why we are performing as this many as we are in South Africa. This is a so-called TIMS study comparing the quality of our maths and science students in grade eight. We are either at the bottom of the pile or quite very, very close to the bottom of the pile. There are two countries at the bottom. One is South Africa, the other one is Morocco. Uh, this was for 2019. And just as a side note, South Africa used to be the biggest exporter of manufactured motor cars. And today, Morocco has overtaken South Africa. South Africa used to be the most technologically advanced economy in the world. Today, we have been overtaken by the Egyptians. Uh, the, the single most important number as far as I'm concerned is life expectancy. Life expectancy correlates with everything that is good. We can quite clearly see what happened to South Africa's life expectancy compared to the rest of the world from 1994, where our life expectancy was approximately 95% to the rest of the world compared to the rest of the world it came down very, very sharply because of AIDS and because of the silly policies of the ANC then. The treatment action campaign turned that around. And then since then, there was quite a dramatic improvement in life expectancy in South Africa. And I would argue one of the very few things that Zuma did well was to roll out the AIDS program. Since then, the life expectancy improved quite, quite significantly in South Africa, but it's still well below where we were 25 years ago. Even compared to the rest of Africa, South Africa's life expectancy today is below that of the rest of Africa. Now, of course, if you have a government that's doing all sorts of bad things, if you have a destructive government in South Africa like what we have, people realize this, and you can see that in all sorts of perceptions. These are some World Bank data. This is the perception of rule of, law, rule of law perception in South Africa, and you can see what's been happening, especially the last couple of years that perception deteriorated quite significantly. Uh, perception about corruption in South Africa, well, then the number or the graph tells, tells you everything you need to, to know. Effectiveness, I would actually argue, we all know that we have a corrupt government, but I think uh, corruption, of course, it causes a lot of damage to the economy, but effectiveness, I would argue, 
causes even more, or the lack of effectiveness causes even more damage to the economy. It's one thing to have a corrupt civil servant where you can actually bribe him to get a license or whatever you need, but it's something completely different if you have a completely ineffective, ineffective civil servant that doesn't do anything. And in many cases, that's exactly what we have. Um, political, this is something that I'm a little bit concerned about, uh, and I'm going to come back quickly to this a little bit later. Uh, at the beginning of, well, in the middle of the 1990s, we had a lot of political instability that improved quite nicely after 1994. Recently, that came that came down again, and we know what happened in uh, KZN and Gauteng recently. Uh, and I, I, I think this is going to deteriorate even further, and I'll give you the reasons for that a little bit later. So the, the, a couple of things on the local elections. A few things that stood out for me. The ANC was the biggest loser, but it's not necessarily in terms of numbers, but what one can pick up as well, the ANC lost its self-confidence. They were not swaggering around at the election center in Pretoria as the way they usually do. They lost self-confidence. And then once you lose self-confidence, then you are in for some for serious hiding. The DA disappointed in the Western Cape, but there were some interesting gains, especially in KZN. IFP is back, especially in KZN. I think EFF, they've reached a kind of a peak. I didn't expect much more from them. I think that they, that's as good as they can do. Action South Africa really surprised, and many of the smaller parties also surprised, and we are in for coalitions, and I think a lot of instability, especially in local authority level. Uh, but this also tells me there's a good possibility of the ANC losing uh, the absolute majority in the next election in two years' time. Okay, now this is important. Just a summary of a few things. This is who we are in South Africa. We have 12 million people without jobs. This is just around the numbers. We have 40 million people with jobs in South Africa, of which 2 million of them are actual civil servants, in inverted commas. And we have 18, actually more, 18 million people uh, that are grant recipients. So the 18 million plus the 2 million uh, civil servants, there are 20 million people receiving an income from the state every month, plus the grant recipients of another 10 million odd. Uh, and we, we have in today in South Africa 33 million people receiving an income from the state every month. We have um, 12 million people in the productive sector, in the, in the private sector, uh, paying basically for 30 million people that are mostly recipients in one form or the other from the state. Now, if you analyze the budget, uh, Dr. Pardi referred to that, uh, then you will see that there will be less money will be spent on that 30 million people over the next couple of years. So in fact, we've already started spending less on them and we will spend less on them because we ran out of money. And uh, if you spend less money in real terms, that is, by the way, so if you spend less money on people, people get angry. So I'm afraid we're probably going to see an increase in social and political tension in South Africa. And a very important reason for that is because money will be taken away from 30 million people. The medium-term budget, uh, just another comment, uh, Dr. Pardi referred to this as well. I have to, and I must tell you, one of the few institutions still, that still work very well in South Africa is Stats South Africa. Thank you to people like you, Dr. Pardi. But it's something I must disagree with you on. And a medium-term budget policy statement is not a, an austerity budget. Uh, it is still a, a highly expansionary budget. It is just slightly less expansionary than what it used to be. You cannot talk about a fiscal deficit of 7% 7, 7 of GDP or rising debt levels and call it austerity. But you, you're right. There was really not that much, that many surprises in there. 
Just one or two things I want to highlight. The one is that the Minister of Finance is predicting economic growth of 1.7% over the next three years. Now, who in his right mind would want to vote for, for a political party that, that, that can't even fudge the numbers a little bit and try to, try to create the impression that there's some hope going forward? 1.7% economic growth is absolutely, absolutely horrible. The grants, that's an interesting, another interesting one. Keep an eye open for that one. The Minister of Finance kicked the ball uh, into touch here because what he did was to simply pass it on to cabinet and say, listen, I'm going to stop the, the special grants in March, but it's cabinet decision on whether they want to continue with that. that. And I think that is indeed what is going to happen. One or two other things, the revenue overrun of 120 billion, I think that's quite conservative. I think it's going to be more. We've got a very nice commodity cycle going on and the commodity exporters are paying a lot of taxes. And another point I want to just touch on quickly, and that's privatization. What we are seeing is privatization by stealth in South Africa. In fact, we've already privatized many things because if you have a government that is for all practical purposes, a government that is collapsing and destroying everything they lay their hands on, then the private sector is simply taking over. We have already privatized the police. There are three times as many private sector security people as policemen. Uh, we are in the process of privatizing electricity, kicking and screaming where Montage eventually allowed 100 megawatt generation for the private sector. The same is happening with railroads. Minister of Finance just announced that a third of the railroads that he will, the private sector can use can, can become partners in that. So we are privatizing uh, just about everything that is supposed to be done by the state. Uh, how to grow the economy? A few things that we certainly need to do. We have to cut spending on the fiscal side. It's become completely and totally unsustainable. We have to consolidate the debt of the state-owned enterprises. Uh, one good thing of having an incompetent government is that they cannot implement a bad idea either. So the NHI is not going to happen. And I'm afraid the grants, we just cannot afford it anymore. We have to cut back on the number of people that receive money from the state every month. And remember the golden rules, make sure private property rights, free trade, and sound money. Things like expropriation, that undermines that. Minimum wages undermines that. Import duties undermines that. ESCOM is a major obstacle to economic growth, and that will prevent the economy from growing. Uh, it will actually keep a lid on economic growth. I just want to touch on this one. This is my calculation on the, the value of the currency, the RAND, RAND currently trading between 15 and 16. It's more or less fairly valued based on my specific model. We can talk about this, but I still advise my clients, and in fact, that is what I do, I advise my clients to make sure that the substantial portion of the assets are invested abroad. A few industries I like, agriculture, I absolutely love that. Medicine, I love that for the future. Education is another industry that's going to change dramatically. Finance, that's another one. And yeah, that's, that's my short presentation. Thank you very much, Professor. Thanks very much, Darby. Very, very uh, an excellent presentation, and there's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, statements there uh, that we will come back come back to. Uh, I'll, uh, and I just want to remind our, our audience and our delegates uh, that you could you could clearly send questions uh, questions through to our Q and A. Uh, there's only two questions that, that I've seen so far, but but also in the chat box because I I do think that these presentations do catalyze uh, some some thinking. Our final presenter is uh, uh, um, Ina Khos, and Ina, I'm going to hand over to you. Um, I, I just, uh, Davia, uh, can you unshare your presentation?
if you don't mind. And then, uh, Ina, over, over to you. There you are. My apologies. Okay, now that's fine, David. I think that's 100%. Ina, uh, are you still? Yes, I'm lost? Okay, you're there. All right. Okay, I thought we lost you, but over to you. <laughs> okay. Um, good afternoon, and um, thank you for having me, Professor Peterson. Um, it's truly an honor to be part of this. My approach is quite different, I have to say. Um, I've decided to bring things way back to local level. Um, all these discussions that we have, uh, you know, for the country particularly, um, you know, are, are not necessarily conversations that people living in our communities are having, although they are, you know, feeling the effects of um, all these um, strategies and policies or lack thereof. Um, they where they are. So that is my focus to bring things uh, a bit to, to local level. Um, so basically for two years, of course, now we have as South Africans uh, and we are still governed under the umbrella of the Disaster Management Act and, you know, so-called command structure excluding of public representatives. And then also rules limiting our constitutional freedoms because of all this. And these are all necessary, of course, because of a virus that humanity lost control over. Um, but the situation is such that uh, its, its continuation is something we can uh, seriously start to question now and should. It was, however, clear from the start that the inequalities which we know exist in this country was going to be laid bare in a way uh, never seen before because of the pandemic and, and the lockdowns. The impact on our lives and livelihoods, especially those with most vulnerable in our society will be felt for years to come. Uh, a darkness, and I don't want to sound too morbid, but there is a darkness that hovers over uh, this nation and it is no longer possible to conceal it with empty promises and excuses from those who are charged with creating the space for better ways. We of course also find ourselves um, uh, on the other side of local government elections this year, as has been alluded to by other speakers, of course. But this is one where the results brought changes on local level that we have not yet seen in our democracy and a test that is presented to um, our democracy and to the idea of shared governance, uh, which those in charge cannot afford to fail. But unfortunately, there is every expectation that they will. So we need service delivery, as we have heard and said a thousand times, to attract investment, to create jobs so that people can provide for themselves and to stop relying on government grants or just have a better quality of life in general. And Darby just said, government can't afford these grants anymore. So how is that possible without political stability, especially on local level? And how is this possible without electricity access to safe drink or to safe drinking water or other basic services? And these are the things communities are dealing with daily. So the economic hubs of our country, apart from Cape Town, are now governed by minority governments. You know, deals were made and political gains are well underway. Uh, few show evidence that the people who voted for them 
and those who did not are at the center of the agendas and not merely positions and power without purpose. So what will this mean for an economy that is apparent and an apparent free fall, as we have just heard? What lay ahead for us, uh, what lay ahead for us at a time is a time of more uncertainty, uh, not just based on the political maneuvering, but because of the impact the resulting policy failures has had on the economy. Further poverty and pressure on the, the state fiscals is then on the cards, which we just heard we can't afford. And these are not just predictions while staring at a, you know, a crystal ball, but rather expectations based on evidence before us. Uh, Aaron Schroeder has said that, uh, you know, a problem is an opportunity. So there are so many problems in our country and, and crises even, and the solutions to these are opportunities uh, for building business or starting a business. And that, you know, should be uh, you know, the, the message. But it has become clear that the current national administration does not know how to or have you know, any interest in creating this kind of environment for entrepreneurship. And it's even worse on local level. So where does this leave South Africans? The fact is our people are tired. We are expected to you know, care about everything all the time uh, without seeing any changes on daily lives. You know, the majority are confronted with seemingly unsurmountable challenges for daily survival. So how do we create an enthusiasm for such problem solving when one is not even sure that the lights will be on. So the answer may lie in the run up to these elections. And some of the things we've seen in the past years or so, where communities have started to change their attitude um, towards, well, first of all, themselves and uh, the partnerships they can have, not just in, in towns, but in neighborhoods. And in a few of these pockets, um, you know, there are communities who have shown that their differences are an asset in solving their problems and that they should and are relied on each other, you know, instead of politicians and administrations. So communities who have made their towns and their neighborhoods attractive for business, who have created jobs as they went along, who have used this solidarity to change their governments, hopefully for the better, have shown some progress and some uh, way of alleviating uh, the problems. And even you know, getting to a point where business could be built on top of you know, the solutions that they are trying to find for themselves. What made the difference though? Uh, I think it was simply at the basis of it, necessity, and realizing that, you know, you can't rely on government, we must rely on ourselves and see how we as a community can bring what we have together. And all of that underpinned and, 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 and sort of a foundation of ethical leadership within these communities, leadership with integrity, in these neighborhoods and participation with integrity. 
in a nutshell, it is this insistence on integrity, not just for themselves, but in, in the way they live their lives and the way they, you know, uh, you know, can go about living in their communities. And so in a nutshell, is this in, is insistence on in, integrity, that thing that is just missing in our daily political arena. So this approach is hopefully taken hold in these communities for the long term. And there is evidence where this approach is rippling out to others. So looking to the future, I believe this new communal solidarity and focus on local fit for purpose solutions may be the only hope to prevent complete collapse while you know, national government sorts itself out. And in the end, create growth and development, even in the smallest ways, um, and development where you know government is not capable or willing to, 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 to do this. I think the aspect that makes these solutions stand out should be emphasized. Um, these approaches to solving problems go beyond charity. Uh, in these communities and do not rely so heavily on society's resilience as government seems to do. People are tired of having to bounce back or find more ways to get up and cope with what situation they are presented with or find themselves in. They want to see and be part of innovative problem solving that will be sustainable and bring solutions fit for their communities. They, they want to be able to predict a problem mitigate the impact or prevent the crisis altogether. You know, a type of risk management or governance in ways that communities develop for themselves and manage accordingly. Um, some have done this successfully without even realizing that that is what they do. They just wanted to do the right thing for them. The partnership with government, which we can't ignore entirely or escape from, should then be approached not from government to the community, but from the community to government. And government should start to realize that that is how it's supposed to work. This relationship between government and local communities is one of complete distrust and incredible animosity in most municipalities. And it is government that must come to the community now and say, show us what you've done, what you think, and we will partner with you instead of directing you or ignoring you as the case is and assist while making sure basic services are in place. So communities will get, should get the chance then to show what's in place and what's been achieved and what is still needed and what plans are being developed and government then needs to step up to support an even fast track where possible. And that is where, you know, the trust is going out the window. Communities don't trust government to do that. So there's an insistence now that needs to start happening. But the weight of the influence should be much more balanced and certainly not the continuation of an almost dictatorial and unresponsive attitude mostly seen from local government this far. I believe the national government will remain as paralyzed as it has been, and that the president will not make decisive changes or decisions, especially to hold the corrupt and inept to account as he keeps promising, 
or any serious um, economic decisions that will create the growth that people will eventually uh, you know, feel on ground level. And certainly this won't happen until the next leadership conference of the ANC. Therefore, any expectation of investment or job creation is hardly something we can look forward to in the next year. And this is why relying entirely on national policies and unex unexecuted plans should be avoided by local communities who are desperate for better lives. And they should insist that the governments they have on local level create environments where they can create the business to solve problems themselves. This insistence, I think, is what patriotism is, not the distorted version sold by us by politicians. Now, is this type of community governance in partnership with a responsive government a prediction? I wish it could be. But it is fairly optimistic expectation, I think, in certain quarters uh, that I hope will catch on. And that is my story. Okay, thanks very much, Ina. Uh, I'm going to ask all the panelists to put their cameras on because uh, we're now going to go in uh, uh, some discussions. And, um, you know, I, I was sort of picking up the chats uh, and there was one comment that stood out to say, you know, uh, these presentations get a very dark and gloomy future for South Africa, uh, specifically for 2022. And, and, and in my direction, I'm going to try to share how we could, could, could uh, probably make it, make it a little bit more more optimistic, uh, uh, if we can. But I want to I want to start off with a comment that uh, um, that Ina made uh, towards the end about that. You know, if we expect from the current government that there are going to be changes, uh, corruption is going to be dealt with uh, uh, aggressively. Uh, we're going to have unemployment uh, 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 that's going to that's going to go the other direction, hopefully more positive. Um, and and and. Uh, and, and she said, well, we're not gonna, we shouldn't expect that. But I want to pick, uh, I want to direct this comment or question specifically to Amanda. I'm gonna start with her first, because Amanda made the, made the statement that uh, um, we can grow our tourism uh, as, as long as we, uh, or tourism sector, uh, and she's very bullish about that, uh, as long as we're building confidence uh, um, out there now, I want to I want to perhaps ask you, Amanda, how would that happen? Uh, uh, hearing what what Darby and Inal and Party have said uh, from your perspectives. Yes, thank you so much, Prof. I think um, you know when 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 we say that you know tourism can uh, you know the the um, uh, specifically and and um, you know when we look at the meetings industry. Because we are bidding for meetings and because we are bidding for events, you know, we just, um, as you know, won the uh, World Cup, um, you know, uh, 20, I think, uh, over for, um, for um, cricket, you know, again, as long as we can, you know, go out there and fill the pipeline. So for us, it is about filling the pipeline, but I cannot stress more, and I think I did say that, that um, if our infrastructure is not there, if our economy is not growing, you know, specifically when you look at domestic, because in the few in the past, we always looked at international and suddenly we had to adapt, you know, to to us hosting not just South Africa, but also the region. 
you know, it was it was always the dollar and the and the euro that was more important. And of course, it is still more important. And the economists and statistics and you know all the clever people will tell us that. Um, but I do think that um, you know if we can get people to to build that, can I call it civic pride, you know, about our country, um, you know, being welcoming. If we just think of how it was when, you know, when we hosted the, the World Cup and everyone forgot about it. But but for us, it is that, is taking hands with, you know, the local, um, with our local economist uh, or economy and, you know, private sector, as well as making sure that from a government perspective, um, we are looking at our skills, we are looking at our infrastructure, um, because, you know, if we don't have um, uh, any tourism product left, um, of course, you know, I, I keep on saying then people will, you know, sleep in, you know, in tents on the street. Um, but if you are looking at the number of hotels that, you know, or accommodation, let me not say hotels, accommodation that, that is coming up and that is still investing, you know, in, in, in the country. Um, so for us, that is that is really where it is. You know, it is going and do really very strong marketing. Marketing, and if I say building confidence at this stage, what we find is that people are we are back there where people say it's too difficult to travel. Um, you know, there are two. If we don't have the right information, if we don't make it easier, one of the barriers that we know, um, for instance, is you know you have to do a test. And we are long haul um, destination, so you need to do a test where you where you live. Then for where you if you if your um, uh, connection you know also will require, and then another one. And and it's those things that we just need to make easier um, um, to build that confidence. Okay, thanks, thanks very much, Amanda. Davi, I want to get to you, uh, um, uh, and and there's one or two questions directly to you, but I want to start off. By, uh, by specifically focusing on ESCO and electricity, because if we, if we talk about economic growth, then you know, electricity is a key part. Now, uh, I want to, have, want to perhaps uh, gauge in your crystal ball uh, what you think is gonna, is gonna happen at, 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 at ESCO. On the one hand, we've got Andre the writer there. I think he's a solid person. He's coming from Sasol, looking at NAMPAC. I also had quite a lot of engagement with him, and I know as an engineer and business people, he's solid. ESCOM has traditional challenges, but then you've got Gwery Mantash uh, that, that saying things on the other hand. Uh, give, me, give me your perspective looking forward. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen to ESCOM. This is a problem that I don't think we can, I don't think it can be solved. Uh, if possible, what I would do if I would want to solve this, I would simply take all the data of ESCOM on the, on the state's books because the bulk of that is anyway guaranteed by the state. I will certainly break it up into smaller pieces, the generation and the distribution part, uh, or the transmission and the distribution part. I will get private sector participation as much as I possibly can. So those are the normal answers that most economists will probably give you. Um, but, you know, ESCOM, there are so many moving parts there, and it's not only local issues. There are things like, for example, internationally, there's this huge opposition to dirty energy like coal. So even if they want to invest more in electricity generation like coal or nuclear, and I like coal and nuclear, and I'm going to get crucified for that, but uh, but uh, they're not simply not going to get funding from it. Uh, locally, there are so many uh, uh, various groups involved in ESCOM, like, for example, organized labor. The workers at ESCOM are just overpaid and underworked in many instances, not all of them, of course. 
I've got a suspicion that there are a lot of political interests in, in Eskom as well. So I, I just don't have an answer to that. I just don't know how we're going to fix this. I don't think green energy is going to be the, the answer in the short term. Green energy simply cannot provide so-called base power. And that simply means that Eskom will be a problem and it will remain a problem for quite some time and it will keep a lid on economic growth for, for many years. I, I can't, because simply because of Eskom, this is my calculations, simply because of Eskom, this economy simply cannot grow faster than 2%. So no, I don't have an answer. I think there are so many vested interests in the whole thing that it probably makes the whole problem unsolvable. Okay, all right. Uh, I know it's a very compli complicated problem. Uh, the same question that we had about uh, F.W. de Klerk uh, as in terms of his legacy, how complex that is. But I want to go to Ina. You know, uh, um, there is a question in the chat box, so in the question and answer that, that, that uh, Q&A that ask whether there are examples that you perhaps have of, um, of, of where community, uh, communities have taken the lead and that, that becomes sustainable. Uh, and also whether there are community government partnerships that, uh, that is in fact yielding the sort of outcomes that you have sketched in your, in your, in your presentation. Yeah, these are small towns and I'm using these particular <clears throat> excuse me, examples because they've been um, you know, publicized a bit as well. So, you'll be able to see the evidence as well. I think the first one coming to mind is Senegal that came from extreme violence in communities, you know, um, at loggerheads with each other, ending up having uh, partnerships amongst each other and setting those differences aside and really uplifting that community and make the town, well, uh, you know, basic infrastructure things that they've started to do together that uh, you can see the difference for which yeah. is continuing it was not just a a once-off thing it's it's something that is sustainable and can continue and that government that government of that local community has uh, you know come to the point not to take over but to understand where they can assist and and do their job in that sense but there's a, a, a real involvement and i think a community like kronstadt is starting to do the same thing uh, fairly successfully um, what was the other hard spot that is now starting with their communities uh, meetings to get something going for them as well. So it's small communities that really suffer with a bad local government who decide to take things in their own hand and it does well for, 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 for uh, you know, the small town tourism. Um, many guest houses and such can pop up in the meantime when that happens and that creates jobs. So these are just a few examples and then there are neighborhood um, um, examples in bigger cities where it's not the entire town or city that's part of it but particular neighborhoods who've, who've come together and, and, and started these things. Okay, thanks Ina. Dr. Pardi, uh, um, uh, I'm also sort of consolidating some of the questions in the, in the chat box as well. Um, Darby talk about the inefficiency of government, uh, the ineffectiveness of government, uh, uh, and uh, even if they are, are clean government, that ineffectiveness may, may play a major role. You mentioned about plans uh, and you listed all the plans, but we still question the actions that's taken place uh, through the plans. What do you think needs to happen to ensure that this country uh, uh, is not going into that guara guara scenario, the one that you have, have sketched. Uh, uh, what should we be doing 
besides the sort of bigger things that, that some of the other presenters already have talked about? Well, I do not know we are in that state already. That's why I said uh, this year is better than next year. And you overlay that with the trouble at ESCOM, uh, which is really just uh, collapsing for a variety of reasons, because government went there and interfered with the engineering and economic work uh, that uh, Bale designed ESCOM as. These are, I mean, if you look at apartheid and the infrastructure of SOEs, I want to differ with Danny uh, a bit uh, on the question of uh, how government uh, runs. I mean, apartheid, white as it was, it encourages development on the combination of state-owned enterprises and private sector and government. It was a state-led development. And what was built throughout that time, that infrastructure of the CSIRs and so on, the orientation was development. Of course, for whites only, it was a, a very sad history. The question is, why should we sell state-owned enterprises when actually they can be effective? It cannot be because they're government-led. We need competent people to drive these things because the developmental challenge of South Africa today is the same as the developmental challenge of the African in 1933. But they relied on science. That's what the Africaners did. They relied on science. When Smarts brought um, Dr. Bale from the US, Bale was already an established person in the US. Perhaps the president may actually go and say, Musk, can you come and work with us here? I don't know whether Musk will listen. But these are the strategic things that have to be done so that ESCOM can do what it was supposed to do by Bay. That design, I don't think ESCOM should be divided. It can't be broken down into smaller things. It is a, an engineering and economic behemoth. It must be run by engineers and achieve its economic and social purpose. I think we have gone in to sell these things, run them down into scrap, sell them cheap, private sector buys them, and then they are not affordable to the majority of the poor. So whatever it is that we are going to do, private sector will get the best deal, the poor will remain where they are and will head into a failed state. So I think what Ina is saying, there is hope in those spaces. Because the future is not this liberal private sector that we have had over the years. It might well be a different private sector, a bigger role for the state to get us where we have to go. But with the political, the corrupt political infrastructure in South Africa, I really don't see my way through. Not with local government as so divisive as it is. There is a circus happening there about people dealing and wheeling and thinking about what will happen in 2024. Are we going to win the elections? Nobody's asking the question, how are we going to solve the current demise? Look at the rail. This rail has been stripped rail by rail with all the government watching. Poverty has deepened with all government watching. 
So what is the reason for putting these people in power? Hmm. Okay. We have a serious problem. So I, my view is that if we look at 2022, this year is better than 2022. And that is correct. 1.7% is not even possible. The fact of the matter is we are going to 2030 with much bigger crisis than we have ever been in the crisis yeah, because of yeah. this rampant corruption and everything and everything about it. <laughs> you know? Okay. So Thanks, I don't uh, see this government has space in a successful future of South Africa. It doesn't. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Pali. Uh, Darby, do you want to comment on some of those statements? Yes. Um, Maybe, maybe. I, I mean, we, we are really all going to jump off a high building now, listening to this panelist. <laughs> so let's let's just see if we can put a bit of a silver lining around this discussion. And I think there are quite a lot of silver linings around this discussion. Now, like I've, what I tried to say is that part of the good thing of having an incompetent government is that they're actually creating a lot of opportunities. And, and there are many opportunities in South Africa, exactly because of the incompetence of the government. There, there are opportunities um, in electricity, in all levels of electricity, the whole industry. And we're seeing that. There are opportunity in security businesses. There are opportunity in education, without a doubt. And I think universities, by the way, it's going to be on the receiving end of technological changes that is happening. They, are, they just open up their opportunities in the railroads. So those are all opportunities that are there. And another major opportunity is opening up for the private sector in, its, in, its, in, in, in the way that, that technology is changing. Technology is changing. I'm, I'm sitting at home at the moment. We are all experts on Zoom all of a sudden. And that is where the real economic activities are taking place. So many of these economic activities, it's not primary stuff anymore. It doesn't mean that if you're not part of the, uh, if you're part of, let me give you a good example of what I mean. Today, the actual value that is created in a primary industry is actually happened in the labs. A, 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 a agriculture is a good example because the value add in agriculture, maybe it happens on the land, but it's because of drone technology. It is because of, of, of uh, artificial intelligence. It is because of, of uh, genetics. Those are the sort of things that's actually driving the primary industries. And I've got a suspicion that the world economy and the South African economy is probably growing much faster than what we than what we think. But but the challenges are the four. The, the, the challenges are as follows: you have to be physically safe in South Africa. And that's a major challenge. Ask me. I've been on the receiving end of that. You must have the you must have the skills to participate in this modern economy. And our education system is really, as we all know, well, what it is. You must have the necessary hardware, a computer like this, for example. You must have stuff to work. To be able to access this wonderful world, and you must have a proper broadband, you must have proper connection. If you have those sort of things, you are made. But unfortunately, the bulk of South Africans, they, they, they are simply being left behind because mostly because of the inefficiencies of government as well. But without a doubt, there are many opportunities. And how I see the future is a it's more of the same, a wasteland of poverty, but with islands of excellence that we're going to see in this. In this country and more people can participate in this if we only can get the politicians to do what they're supposed to be doing but that is my view and there is a bit of a silver lining don't go all and jump off our eye yeah thanks Tommy. Well, well, can, I, can i come in i mean i don't know, I mean, I know that uh, you haven't asked me to but uh, the, the the key issue i think that we are struggling with and that will continue to struggle with is governance and 
for as long as that governance is in the way it is. I mean, we're talking about broadband. How many years have we been talking about broadband? Exactly. So in the main, if you go back to how apartheid planned, you can see that there was a master plan from the rail to electricity to research institutions. There was a master plan. We don't have a master plan. We move with the wind. So it boils down to leadership. And we are in a crisis where the majority are poor. Now, how do we transform that majority into a workable future? They cannot be left out in the way they are. And this is the reality. So the balancing of the budgets and everything is important. But surely we are damned. We are condemned if we don't have the sound technical skills, the support of science to move ourselves forward. And unfortunately, the current government is not capable of doing that. That yeah. is the, 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 the trouble. Doc, uh, doc, thank you, Dr. Party. Uh, uh, as always, with these sort of, so we're in our time is not on our side, but I'm going to give each of the panelists uh, one minute, uh, just maybe to make one statement that they think in the concluding. But I, I often want us to end with a webinar to also give a challenge back to the university. Because remember, this is the thought leadership webinar. And, and, and uh, uh, Darby have said that some of the sectors that he will invest education is key. Uh, I'm talking about higher education now. Uh, um, so yeah, so I'm going to start with, with perhaps with you, Amanda. Any last thought? Uh, and I, it literally is only one minute that I'm going to I'm going to give each four of you. Are you muted, Amanda? Yeah. yeah. I, I think I did say that I'm in marketing and, you know, um, yeah, the, the, the economists will say, you know, the marketing, marketing people are the people that are dreaming. But I am such a um, uh, patriotic South African, you know, um, and African. And I do believe that, you know, there are hope um, in spite and I fully agree with the with the pockets of excellence. And I think if we can build up that pocket of excellence and then just to say from the sector that we are, we are building those dreams and stories for people when people come to this beautiful country that we don't have to do anything from our mountains to our valleys to our beautiful um, uh, people and our animals, you know, um, and that is what people want to build stories. That is the that is the crack um, of, 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 of tourism. So for me, you know, I'm optimistic that we will people want to come. They want to be, you know, um, having those experiences and 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 i would say to the university and it's my alma mater um i'm from the university of the free state by the way i was born in cynical and grew up in cynical um but um so so you know I, I i i want to say that i think skills is absolutely key you know for the future and in whatever um sector whatever we can do as practical skills because i think that is what what we really lack you know for people for for, for children for students to be uh forward thinkers okay thank you very much amanda uh Ina? um uh, well i'm from the university so what i know is we are trying very hard to get to a point where we can uh, have students who recognize the problem of course but recognizing the opportunity in it, the business that can be built or the business that can, um, you know, come from that, um, even from the humanity side and knowing how to 
to to bring those together who will then be able to solve it. Um, my message is um, start with a problem that you can solve, solve it, have that small victory and get the momentum. Don't think too big. I think you can solve all the problems in your town or your country all at once. Start somewhere with something that can succeed, that can have momentum. Thank you. Thanks, Ina. Dr. Party. Well, I have, a, I have a dream. My dream is nation building is a big issue and we are polarized in all spaces in South Africa. And that polarization is not going to stop. Does it cost a lot for university education to be free for everyone? Everyone, because that's the only space where we have numbers almost in significant numbers. And the assignment is for these intellectuals at university. They have four years. If they are black, they like take six years because they fail, not because they are stupid, but because they are not supported adequately. But there is that period of time of cohort after cohort. The key question is what South Africa do you dream of? Whether from whatever discipline they, but that assignment must be ingrained in, that, in those cohorts, that will be creating the leadership. That may actually take us further in South Africa. This issue of fees for the poor and fees for divides the leadership that we seek in this country. I think it will not cost a lot to actually for universities to commit to that with government and say, you students, yours is to define the future of this country. And every year you will write a paper on that, you will work together because they are the elite anyway. And probably they will not be elitists. That's where I see the future. The rest, I don't see are past me. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Dr. Party. Uh, Darby, your, your final thoughts? Yeah, I've got a few points to make, but I'm going to limit it only to, to, to education. And I did mention that education is one of those industries that I really fancy going forward. But I'm afraid, um, I think that the private sector or new technology and everything that goes with that is going to eat the lunch of traditional universities. If you look at the, the, the business plan of a traditional university, or basically of education, is that you've got a clever guy standing in front of a class. Uh, all the kids are more or less in the same, uh, the same age group. And in the past, they used to be of the same gender as well. That has changed, fortunately. But in future, a couple of things are going to change. And it's important for us to embrace this. The one thing that is going to change is this business plan is going to change. It's going to look different. And we have to stop with our fixation on qualifications. And we have to put more emphasis on skills. Of course, it doesn't mean we have to stop with qualifications, but skills is far more important than qualifications. And we've got, for example, in South Africa, a qualification called matric, but it's basically, it doesn't mean anything. And I think that's where the emphasis should be for universities. Education in future is going to be something that you do not stop with a qualification. It's something that will go on forever. And it's something that will not necessarily happen in a classroom somewhere. Uh, the business plan will change. It will change dramatically. And the best of all of this if you have the necessary access, broadband, the hardware and the skills, you will be able to access quality, high quality education at a fraction of the price that you need to pay uh, for today. And that certainly is certainly something that I'm looking forward to. And that is one of those industries that I certainly will be investing in. All right. Thanks, Darby. Uh, we should have a, a more offline discussion on that again, uh, uh, um, on that specific issue. But 
I would like to say thank you very much to the panelists. What clearly have started off in the presentation is a realistic, based on the facts, an outlook of 2022 that is very bleak, uh, 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 very dark, very gloomy. Um, but I do think that within that, there are opportunities. Uh, there are also uh, areas and islands of excellence. And how do we capitalize on that? I do think for the university, besides the comment on skills, part of us, is, part of the role of the university is also to impart not only the skills, but also those values that, uh, that will add to the social cohesiveness and the nation building that, uh, that, that all of you, in fact, have, have, have said. So uh, to, to uh, uh, Dr. Pardi, Leo Hoshla, uh, Ms. Amanda Kotsen-Slapo, uh, Dr. Ina Ghos, and Sir Davi Ruud, thank you very much for your contribution. Uh, and uh, and also to the delegates for your participation. I have tried to, to work and put some of your questions together. I haven't got to all of them, but thank you for your in interactive and this. This is our final webinar series for 2021, but please be on the lookout for 2022. We're gonna continue with, uh, with this webinar series. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you, bye-bye. Thank you.